Okay, good morning. Hymn 472 in the TLH. 472. Rise, ye children of salvation, all who cleave to Christ the head. Wake, arise, O mighty nation, ere the forms are on tread. He draws nigh and would defy all the hosts of God most high. Saints and heroes long before us firmly on this ground have stood. See their banner waving o'er us, conquers through the Saviour's blood. Ground we hold whereon of old fought the faithful and the bold. Fighting we shall be victorious, by the blood of Christ our Lord. On our foreheads bright and glorious shines the witness of his word. Spear and shield on battlefield, his great name we cannot yield. When his servants stand before him, each receiving his reward. When his saints in light adore him, giving glory to the Lord. Victory our song shall be, like the thunder on the sea. Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy upon us sinners. Amen. Again we pray. O God, you declare your almighty power above all in showing mercy and pity. Mercifully grant us such a measure of your grace that we may obtain your gracious promises and be made partakers of your heavenly treasures. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. Hey, the verse of the week, Revelation 22:12. Let's speak this together. Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me, to give to everyone according to his work. Now, if you, look at, uh, if, if you look at the congregation at prayer, you can sort of cheat with the question that I'm about to ask you, which is, who is speaking? Jesus. Jesus, correct. Now, the congregation at prayer has the capitalized... Uh, has the capitalized me's. And I left those in, often I will remove them, but I left them in on purpose to maintain the clarity. 
plus it's the book of Revelation, so you have a pretty good chance that the person who's doing the talking is Jesus, because he does most of the talking. So behold, I am coming quickly. Why does it matter that he's coming quickly and not just that he's coming at some point? What's the, what's the difference between your parents saying, I'll be home quickly, and your parents saying, well, I'll be home eventually? Yes, correct. Sense of urgency. So Jesus is coming when? Any minute. Yeah, whenever. <laughs> Nobody knows. He's coming. That's all we know. At some point. But he doesn't say, well, I'll be back, you know, at some point. He says, I'll be back but I'm coming quickly. So the fact that he says I'm coming quickly means there's urgency here. There's not time for lollygagging. There's not time for saying, well, I've still got you know, an hour before he gets here, so I might as well spend the next half an hour, uh, I don't know, dinking around on YouTube or something or Facebook while I wait and then spend those last 30 minutes getting ready. No, you don't know, for one, exactly when he's coming. So he could come anytime, but you also know he's coming quickly. So there's urgency, anytime now, anytime now. It's like, you know, when you have, a, uh, when you have company coming to your house and they say, I'll be there at 2 o'clock, and you say, okay, I'll have everything ready, and then it's 1.58, and you're running around the house going, okay, they're going to be here any minute now, any minute, I, uh, did I dust this, did I get, or maybe that's just me. Uh, but, you know, that's, that sense of urgency that, okay, they're coming, they're almost here, you know, you, you, if you have a uh, two, almost three-year-old daughter who knows people are coming, it's always, oh, we're looking out the window. Are they here yet? Oh, no, they're coming, but they're, but they're here. Okay, they're coming. I know they're coming. Are they here yet? Okay, no. Every 30 seconds or so, there's that anticipation of, well, let's check out the window this time because I know they're coming soon. That's how Jesus wants you to be. I know he's coming. Mm, okay, is he here yet? No, not here yet. Okay, well, let me, uh, I don't know. Let's keep cleaning or doing something. All right, uh, is he here yet? Oh, great, okay. Uh, no, not yet, but I know he's coming quickly. You have to have a sense of urgency, and that's what the Christian life is. It's a sense of urgency. Um, every now and then, the sense of urgency gets used, it gets weaponized uh, in questions like this. If Jesus came back tonight, would you want him to see you dancing? <laughs> you know, I say dancing because, you know, it used to be a sin to dance. Or how about uh, for us Lutherans? If Jesus came back this afternoon at 2 o'clock, do you think he'd want to find you buying insurance? Because, you know, buying insurance used to be uh, frowned upon in the Lutheran church because it meant you didn't trust in God enough. Okay? So, uh, if you believe that Jesus is coming, then... Do you think he'd want to see you do X, Y, and Z? No, that can be weaponized, even though the question is a valid one. If Jesus comes, how do you want him to find you? Do you want him to find you in sloth, in a house that's a mess? And he says, but you knew I was coming. You, know, I, you knew I was coming for supper. The house isn't cleaned. Uh, the guest room isn't made up. There's not even any... There's not even any food for supper. I mean, you knew I was coming. Uh, 
You say, oh, I'm sorry, I just forgot. Well, you don't get to say that. <laughs> you say, well, how did you forget? I told you every day. I called you every day, three times a day, and I said, hey, I'm coming, don't forget. How could you forget? I called you 10 minutes ago and told you I was 10 minutes out. I told you I was coming quickly. What were you doing? Oh, I don't know, I was on YouTube. <laughs> okay. He's coming quickly, so there's urgency. And my reward is with me. What does it mean that his reward is with him? Yeah, he's bringing it. And so in, when I was studying to be able to talk about this verse with you, one thing kept coming to my mind, and there's that really great hymn, Christ is surely coming, bringing his reward. Well, that's, that's what it means that my reward is with me. Hey, I'm coming, but I'm not coming alone. I've got rewards with me this time. It's like when dad goes away for business and he comes back and he says, I'm coming back and I got presents from the duty-free shop. <laughs> I remember my dad used to go on business trips a lot and, and he w if he went to a conference, he'd always bring like the conference swag, you know. And the kid, oh boy, we, us kids thought that was great. Wow, look at this little stress ball, all right. <laughs> or he'd go, you know, to like Amsterdam or London or I don't know. He, was, he went all over for a while. And he'd come back and he'd have, you know, a little something. It's like, you know, here, Dad's coming. But he also has his reward. You know, were you good for Mom while I was gone? Oh, you were? Well, here you go, you know. So he's coming and his reward is with him. What is his reward? Pardon me? Mm. You're not wrong. You're just not right. Uh, yes, okay, eternal salvation, but what does that even mean? Yes, okay, that's what I wanted. Everlasting life where? With him, right. That's the, that's the big thing. With him. And when we say with him in the sense of everlasting life, what we mean is in his presence, no veils, no humiliations of incarnation, the fullness of who he is, the transfiguration is as close to people have come as to seeing the fullness of that glory, but even that was veiled. So it's, it's the fullness of him in his presence, in the courts of heaven, being there. God is right with you. There's no barriers anymore. Bill. What's the difference between eternal and everlasting? Yeah. <laughs> Nothing. He says eternal, he says everlasting. It, the, the, it, the language wasn't the eternal or the everlasting. It was the wording of salvation versus life. Which okay. salvation, salvation now. right, because you have salvation now, but you don't have, and you, I mean, you, you, can, you have the hope of, et of eternal or everlasting life now, but you don't yet have that. How do you know that you don't yet have that? I don't agree, so I'm going home. <laughs> well, good riddance. <laughs> uh, how do you know that you don't have eternal life right now? Because you get old and sick and you die. If you had eternal life, you wouldn't get old, you wouldn't get sick, and you wouldn't die. But you do. 
because you don't quite, you, you have the promise of that everlasting life, but you aren't living that everlasting life yet. You do have salvation, and your salvation is everlasting, and your salvation that is everlasting does manifest itself at the end, the telos, the ultimate fulfillment, in everlasting life. That's why you're not wrong, but, you know, I'm all about, I'm all about technicalities. Okay, so, to give, uh, that's his reward, yeah, everlasting life. And he's going to give to everyone. Why is it to and not everyone? Why I'm going to give to everyone instead of I'm going to give to everyone? Pardon me? What about believers? What about all believers? <laughs> That's who he's going to give it to. So everyone... The one is the believer. Everyone is the believer. So to every believer, I will give my reward according to his... Uh-oh! <laughs> I love it. Okay. Work equals what? Hey, would you look at that? According to his work, the work is the faith. How is your faith? Remember, you have to you always ask yourself this question. How is my faith measured? Because again, to use the comical example, it's not like Jesus comes with a scale and says, well, you gotta be, you gotta have at least four pounds of faith. All right, well, you're only at three and a half, so you know, you don't have enough faith because I measured your faith. How do you measure faith? What is the concrete reality of faith? It's in the life. How do you know faith? How do you see faith? How do you measure faith? By the life. How does Christ judge faith? By the work. So each one is rendered his reward according to his faith, which is made manifest in how he lives his life of faith in the deeds that he performs. Okay? Um, that's, so that's every one is the believer because if it was everyone it would be universalism, that every single person gets a reward. Now, you know, in a technical sense, every person does get a reward, but it's the kind of reward where if you play dumb games, you get dumb prizes. So you get a reward, but it might not be the reward that you actually want. Every, ev everyone receives what they have earned. Every one, as in the believer, receives his reward from Christ. Okay, let's speak this again. Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. What does God's word say to workers? Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not men, because you know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does. Hey, we're just going to do... Whoops. For free. Sorry. Uh, we're just going to do this quickly so that the kids can get to Sunday school. Um, you're to serve wholeheartedly in this translation, which I'll get to in a minute with the adults. Serve wholeheartedly, which means what? Give your best. Everything you got. Right. Give everything you got. 
So you're, you're not serving, you know, I'll give you 90%, but the other 10% of my service I'll wait for you to earn. No, you serve you know, to the best of your ability, do everything to the very best, give it everything you have. Um, as if you were serving the Lord, why? Because you are, which we'll talk about in a minute. Because you know that the Lord will reward everyone, see, there's everyone, for whatever good he does. Well, if you don't do good, you don't get rewarded. Whether he is slave or free. Why slave or free? Why does it matter whether you're slave or free? Because God is not a lover of... The Lord is not a lover of... persons. He does not show partiality. In the, in the Greek, to say lover of persons or show partiality, it, what it literally says is, you do not love faces. Because your prosopon, your face, is the thing that people look at to see if, you know, what is your status? I have a really clean, happy face that's adorned richly. Oh, I love you because your face is rich. Or I have a dirty face because I've been in the streets. You're dirty. I don't like you because of how your face looks. You're ugly. You don't look like nobility. So he's not a lover of faces, which means he shows no partiality. Is that a variation of what I've heard? God is not a respecter of persons? Yes, it's exactly that. Yeah, he's not a respecter of persons. He loves people, but he doesn't care about persons. So he doesn't care about your personality, he doesn't care about your wealth, he doesn't care about your employment, any of that. You're, you're slave or free, you're all together. Whether you are a slave who is under a master or you're free and you're voluntarily doing your work, you do the best that you can because in every case, the Lord is still rewarding you for the good that you do. And you're serving God, not man. Okay, questions about that? Okay, to Sunday school. Go to Sunday school. This reminds me of God's helpers. Thomas and I saw it a couple times. You get a car, you get a car, you get a car. Yes. Yes. Everybody gets a car. Or a sweater. Or, you know, whatever. Whatever it is. Or a Ford truck that has whatever. Oh, yeah, the Ford Bronco. With the Sasquatch option, with the suspension lift and the 36-inch tires. By the way, they advertise the Sasquatch option, so I know that it exists in theory. But until yesterday, I had never seen one. But yesterday, on my way into St. Joseph for the convocation, I saw a Sasquatch option Bronco. And I just about crashed the car. Oh, man. It must have been. It must have been a vision of heaven, maybe. You know, this is the kind of thing I, I keep telling Carolyn. You know, Carolyn, you look at this. Sasquatch, 36-inch tires. Who doesn't want that? She said, but... Why do you need that? I said, oh, it's, it's not about need. It's, you know, what if? It's all about what if. You know, what if I'm driving down the road and somebody's in a ditch and then I need to use those 36-inch tires and that front-end winch to get somebody out? You, know, you just never know. <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> uh -huh. uh, 
man's life is not an accumulation of things. <laughs> he is correct. Right, you know, I don't need an accumulation. It's really just the one. Right, I think that's fairly reasonable. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I'm glad to have somebody because <laughs> it's a lonely corner. <laughs> okay, uh, so I want to just look at this uh, this table of duties passage. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not men, because the this is so. This is the New King James, and it's fine. But there are certain things that are not as clear in the translation that I want to bring out for you. Um, and, and, you know, this, this idea of as if you were serving the Lord, not man. Why? Well, because you are serving the Lord. Now, you can go to other places to find that. Um, excuse me. Um, the best example is Matthew 25, which is the sheep and the goats, remember, because uh, the, the sheep say, Lord, Lord, when did we do that? Now, that's a compliment, by the way. So if, if the Lord says to you, hey, you did this unto me, the greatest response you could possibly have is to say, when did I do that? Because then you weren't thinking about it, and that's the best. Um, and the goats say, Lord, Lord, when did, we do, when did we not do that? Now that's the opposite, because they say, well, if I had known it was you, I would have done it. I mean, I saw the beggar at the side of the road, but boy, if I had seen you, Lord... Well, then I would have taken care of you. I mean, the beggar's nothing, but you are the Lord. So um, what does Jesus, what does the Lord say in both of those instances? Assuredly, I say to you, exactly, whatever you do unto the least of these, my brethren, you do unto me. So when was it that we took care of you? When you saw the beggar at the side of the road and bought him a Subway sandwich. When did we not take care of you? When you saw the beggar by the side of the road and said, if he was the Lord, I would take care of him, but I'm a lover of faces, so I don't want to be a part of him because he's dirty and scary or whatever. So you can go other places, but you don't actually need to. So this is from Ephesians chapter 6. And I need to find my place here. Yeah, okay. Um, Matthew Noyas, du luntis hosto curiu kai uk anthropois. This is not actually a separate sentence the way it is here. It's a continuation of a thought that St. Paul had. And this is something that you see in Paul a lot because he just kind of rambles on and on and on and on. Uh, when I, so I, it was Greek 103. Greek 103 in college, and we read Plato's Apology, which was kind of hard. <laughs> kind of hard, yeah. And uh, I remember we, we had certain numbers of lines that we were assigned for every day. Why are you back here? What things? Your papers? Yeah, my papers. No, go downstairs.
I'm not going to leave the 99 behind. <laughs> it was a joke. <laughs> uh, yeah, so Greek 103, reading Plato's Apology, and so we had these lines that we were assigned to read, and uh, nobody, nobody could do it. We all came back to class. Nobody knew what it was. We, we read it. Like, I recognize that these are words. I have no idea what to do with it because it was like 12 lines of one run-on sentence with no punctuation and no verb because sometimes the Greeks like to get saucy. And we, we showed up and the professor just said, okay, who has a translation? And we all kind of, you know, you put your eyes down because if you don't look at him, he won't call on you <laughs> because that's how that works. <laughs> And he just started laughing. He was just sitting on his desk and he started laughing and he said, so I assume none of you have one. And we said, no, no, we don't know what to do. And he just laughed and said, yeah, I know, I did that on purpose. And St. Paul's uh, epistles are often very much like that, where it's just on and on and on and on and on, and you're just turning page after page. But there's no period, there's not even a comma, what am I doing? So all of the periods and stuff you have in your Bible, the editors put that stuff in there to make it easier to read. So this is actually the continuation of a thought. Um, and he says, with eunoios, which is willingness. So that's, that's the word that's wholeheartedly. And wholeheartedly is fine. It, the sense of the word is with, with every fiber of your being, you are doing something not begrudgingly, that you are happy to do it uh, like, you know, like when you learn how to do your chores <clears throat> by messing them up and then your parents say, uh-uh, now you do it again and do it the right way. So then you learn, I'll just do it the right way the first time if you're smart, not if you're me. Uh, you learn that you just do it right the first time and then you don't have to do it again. Me, I just did it mediocre again and again and again out of spite and then got angry that I had to do it again and never learned, which is the definition of insanity. So if you think teenagers have any ounce of sanity, you're wrong. Uh, serve wholeheartedly, serve willingly, just as Christ, or um, really a better translation, serve willingly to Christ and not to men. Serve willingly as to Christ and not to men. So the idea that, you know, as if you were serving Jesus, it, it's not the best because what the Greek actually says is that you're serving, uh, you're serving willingly as to Christ and not as to men. So the sense of that is, you know, as if you're serving. Okay, so I'm going to serve as if I were serving Christ, but I'm not serving Christ. I'll do it as if. I'll treat you as if you're Christ, but I know you're not, but as if. Whereas what the sense is in the, that St. Paul actually says is, serve this way because it is to Christ that you are serving and not, to, and not man. You are serving the Lord. You are not serving man. Even when your boss says, hey, go, I don't know, do this job, and you say, okay, yes, boss, I'll go do that job, you're, you're not really serving your boss. You're really serving Christ. So why do you do everything to the best of your ability? In the knowledge that 
You're serving the Lord. Now you're getting a deeper sense of what the fourth commandment really is because it's not, like, it's not like your parents or governing officials or other authorities, you know, boss, are as if, uh, it's not as if they are Jesus to you, so you pretend that you, boy, I, you know, I really hate my boss's guts, but I'll just like, in my head, Photoshop a picture of Jesus over his face so that I can pretend like every time he talks, it's Jesus talking to me, and that'll make it easier for me. It isn't that. It's not as if, it is because. Because in every authority, there is the authority of Christ. Christ. Right, think of what Jesus says to Pontius Pilate. You would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. Which means what, firstly, about the passion of Jesus? By whose authority is Jesus being crucified? His Father, God the Father's authority. And uh, by whose authority does Pontius Pilate then wield his secular authority? God's. So the authority that man possesses, he only possesses because he has been given that authority by God, but all authority ultimately is God's authority. When God says, I am... He is the only one that has any degree of authority. Any other person that wields authority is essentially uh, a reflection of the Lord, utilizing his authority as it has been given him to use. But it isn't his authority. So like even, let's say, the President of the United States, he has authority. Why, in a secular sense, does he have authority? No. I mean, yes, the people have elected him, but, but what, why do the people elect him? You, know, you elect somebody because you like him and you think he's going to be a good ruler and you want him to hold that authority, but where does the authority come from? Where is it established? God. Now, don't get ahead of me. <laughs> the Constitution, the establishing document of the nation sets up levels of authority. And the people place somebody into that authority that they want to wield that authority. So you vote for whoever it is that you vote for because you believe that that person has what it takes to wield the authority responsibly and in wielding that authority responsibly to lead the nation well. What <laughs> I don't I, 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 agree with, I agree with you but that's a, that's a conversation for the back porch with a couple beers not for Bible class <laughs> I might need more than a couple for that conversation uh, so the authority in the secular sense that is wielded by the person who is at the head of our nation is given to him by this document that says this is the authority that you have within the confines of the nation and the structure that we have established here and the people will be the ones to decide who they want to wield that authority but it isn't the people who give him the authority it's the people who put him into the office that has the authority okay so from a secular standpoint, yes, okay, the President of the United States has, a, has his authority because the Constitution gives him the authority to do X, Y, and Z. Mm. 
and the people put him into that place that has the authority. Okay. But from a theological standpoint and from a biblical standpoint, where does his authority really come from? God, right. So that's where you were ahead of me. <laughs> that's what I was driving at. And I applaud you for following my, my motion so well. And the authority of all, all leaders, whether they be pagan, communist, or whatever, that authority comes from God. But man is, what's the word I want, has messed that up. Yes, man, man is, we only do one thing well. And the, the one thing we do well, we do really well, and that is screw things up. <laughs> so, you know, it, next time your head's getting a little big, just have somebody remind you, yeah, but you know, the only thing we're really good at is messing things up. And, it, and it's true, so God gives this authority, and that's, what, that's at the root of the fourth commandment is the issue of who has authority. And we say, God alone has authority. Uh, and, of course, the table of duties here, Ephesians 6, in t about workers, is all about the fourth commandment. What do you do when somebody who is over you, who has authority over you, tells you that this is how you should act? You do it. Because you are respecting the authority. Not, not in a sense, the authority of the individual. Like, the, for again, to use this example, the President of the United States. He has authority, and when he does whatever he does, you respect the authority that he has, but not because he is a man in a position. You respect his authority because whether he's using it for good or for ill, the authority that he wields is still God's authority. Now, obeying somebody who is a wicked ruler versus a good ruler, that's a completely different question. The only question that I want to talk about here, and, and that's why I brought in the Greek, is to show you that here it isn't as if you're serving the Lord, it is that you are serving the Lord. That anybody who is in authority over you is, in a sense, the Lord to you because they have authority, and all authority comes from God. Why do you obey your parents? Because you obey Jesus, and that's his authority. Why do you obey the governing officials? Because they have authority that comes from the Lord. Why did Jesus submit himself to Pontius Pilate? Because Pontius Pilate had authority. Now, of course, it's authority that he wouldn't have unless God had given it to him. Uh, but So in the divine sense, Christ has authority over Pontius Pilate, but in the human sense, he is under Pontius Pilate. So he obeys. He obeys the law. How many, how many of the pharisaical laws did Jesus break? How many of the laws? The Pharisees? Trick question. It is a trick question. Everybody was so scared to answer. Sometimes I do this just because it's fun for me to look and see everybody going like this. <laughs> no, so the so the, the the religious laws or there were laws about like religious purity that came from the the intertestamental period, like from the Maccabean era on. A lot of those laws were just not really laws. 
And so uh, Jesus doesn't really, I mean, he doesn't really follow them t to the degree. He follows the Old Testament covenantal law. But the, but the Pharisees are always getting angry with him. Why do your disciples not wash their hands? Well, is there a law? Is there a law that I'm supposed to wash my hands before I eat? What's well, our custom? See, that's the thing. There's the law and then there's the custom. So, okay, but is trespassing against the custom something that's trespassing against the law? Like, uh, what's a custom here? I don't know. Oof. There's a lot of them, but I can't think of one specifically off the top of my head. I don't know, let's just use this one. The custom of going to McDonald's at six in the morning to sit around and solve all the world's problems over coffee. Okay, let's talk about that custom. So if somebody new comes to town and decides that they don't really want to do that, they want to do something else with their morning, then does good old Chief Panning show up at their door and say, I've noticed you haven't been down there solving the world's problems over coffee at six in the morning. That's our custom. Get down there or get out of town. Well, no. It's a custom. Doesn't necessarily... Didn't the disciples uh, scrape the heads of wheat as they walked along the trails? Yeah, and ate it. And that was, the Pharisees said they were, it was a stretch that they were, they were doing that on Sabbath, uh -huh. and they shouldn't do that. But, but there's nothing in the, in the uh, nothing in the law Says you Thou shalt not pick a grain of wheat and eat it on the Sabbath. Yeah. That, you know, to, to hearken to a joke from the convocation, that must be in 4th Thessalonians somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> okay. um, I'm, I'm looking for a law like that, and I still haven't found one. Jesus didn't know of one, and he is the law, so, I, you know, I think we're pretty safe. See, it's the, the biggest problem with the Pharisees is what is the spirit of the law versus what is the letter. Now you can be literal. You can be that, no, uh, actually. You can be one of those guys, or you can be the guy that actually understands what the law means. Uh, because the depth of the law is far greater than what the letter of the law lets on, what the letter of the law um, might look like. Uh, and that's one of the things that Jesus points out. I mean... <sighs> What constitutes, what constitutes rest? This is, this is not a trick. This is not a trick. But generally speaking, what would constitute rest? Stopping what? Stopping uh, your labors. Yeah, if, we, if, if you think about, you're either working or you're resting then what is resting? It's not working. Well, what is work? If I'm working or I'm resting, and resting is supposed to be not working, what would we say could constitute work? Not resting. Which means anything you do that isn't something that's restful or resting is work, which means I worked on the Sabbath. 
Now, Morris doesn't like this psalm because it shines in his eyes during Bible class, so I should be considerate of him, but do I want to double work on the Sabbath because I'm really supposed to be resting? <clears throat> that shows you how much I love you. <laughs> Trespassing the law for you, okay? I mean, so that's, that's, that's the world of the law in Jesus' day. Anything that is not rest is work. This, that's work. You're not supposed to do that. You're supposed to be resting. Right, see, and that's why Jesus says, well, what if your ox falls into the well? It's work to pull your ox out. How many of you are going to let your ox drown in the well? None of us. <laughs> because it's not, that's not the point. Okay? Customs. Jesus does not trespass any of the laws. The Pharisees try to catch him and say that he has trespassed the laws. Not even just that they have made. Yeah, that's the point, is that they go back to the, 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 the laws of Moses. And they say, you have trespassed the laws of Moses, working on the Sabbath. This is the irony of it. You have, you have raised the dead on the Sabbath. That's not the work of God. That's the work of the devil, because you did work. <laughs> I mean, what kind of asinine statement is that? What kind of... What kind of ridiculous idea of rest versus work is that. that that's, what, that's why Jesus puts him to shame. So Jesus doesn't break the law at all. He follows the law, but he follows the law in its fullness. And nobody understands the law better than Jesus because he is the law. And he wrote the law. And he proclaimed the law. I mean, you don't get to school the, the teacher here. Bill. In my mother's Presbyterian church, Many years ago, uh, there was some controversy because uh, they followed they followed the the uh, the letter of the law to not work on the Sabbath. Oh yeah, and sure. Man mandated rest. Yeah. Yeah. And mm -hmm. Mom told me one time that Grandma, her mother. Told Grandpa, says, well, that's fine for you to sit in your recliner there on Sunday while I have to fix dinner. <laughs> and, and they, uh, uh, in some of the more conservative families in the Presbyterian, they fixed their meal on Saturday afternoon mm -hmm. and then served it on Sunday. Sunday. And then that, but that got kind of erased, too, because sure. the men wanted a hot meal. <laughs> uh, so Those they, men, they're no, yeah, they're no they good. Erased. They're no good. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I know about that, that custom, mandated rest. But the thing is, does rest mean not doing anything? Because, <laughs> because, because here's the thing. I, I, can, I can point out the hypocrisy of the mandated rest already, in this way. Well, in your mother's Presbyterian church, and I'm only I'm saying it that way because that's how you brought it up. Yeah. In your mother's Presbyterian church, was it expected that you would get up and go to church on Sunday? Mm -hmm. Did you have to go take a bath or a shower or, or get yourself cleaned up? And did you have to get yourself ready for church? Well, guess what? That's work too. 
Did you have to get to church somehow? Did you have to drive or walk or, you know, however it is you got to church? Well, sure, that's work. I mean, the hypocrisy of it is I can't fix a meal on Sunday, but I can still get up out of bed and do all the work that it's going to take for me to get there on Sunday because the pharisaical understanding of the letter of the law that is you shall rest on the Sabbath day means, well, I shouldn't do anything on the Sabbath day. But then when you realize, well, I shouldn't do anything at all on the Sabbath day, but I'm also supposed to go to church, how do you reconcile the two? Because one is work and one is rest, and, and what am I supposed How do I keep the law then? Because I can't rest and go to church, so what do I do? What choice do I have? You know, so then the only choice that you have is to start setting class, you know, you have to create a classification system. And then you have to start being really legalistic about, well, this is work, but this isn't work. You know, getting up to go to church isn't work, but cooking a meal, that's work. Or turning on the light switch is work, but getting out of bed isn't work. And then you, you know, so it's, it's really sort of silly should you take a day off and maybe, you know, relax a little bit? Absolutely. Jesus thinks you work really hard throughout the week and he'd love for you just to take a little bit of time and rest. Does that mean that maybe you, you uh, don't get to, I don't know, mow your lawn on a Sunday afternoon? No. Does it mean you can't Go out and do something as a family on a Sunday afternoon? Like the, the custom of the, the Sunday drive, right? Does that mean you can't go for your Sunday drive? No. Just means take it easy. Just chill out a little bit today. All the rest of your week is like this. This is the Lord's day. Let it be the Lord's day. Go let the Lord take care of you. Worship the Lord. Receive his gifts. Be with each other. Enjoy some fellowship. Take a little bit of time. Just... Take it easy today. My experience. And then you, I'll cut you. In the old days, they didn't have any stores or anything open on Sunday. You know, you know, you could, you didn't get groceries or anything. Well, they didn't have anything on Sunday. Yeah. So you didn't work and they didn't work either. I, I, I think there is a lot to be said for that. There are, I mean, so much is open now, and you just, why? I mean, some things maybe are essential, but most things aren't. And we take it for granted now. Yeah, we do. We do take it for granted now. There was, um, rats, I, I was, yeah, right. I mean, obviously, there are, there are some things where that doesn't quite work out, but, you know, I like the idea that, Oh, what I was going to say was, yeah, so the blue laws, you know about blue laws? So Indiana, actually, even while I was at seminary, it's Ill, it was illegal to buy alcohol on Sunday. Maybe you, maybe you know about that. Maybe that was a law here, too. I think in Wisconsin, uh, you can get it at 9 a.m. if you want. <laughs> because obviously, you don't have anything better to do, I guess. Uh, but, yeah, so... The, 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 the Christian piety that starts to become legalism and then invades the secular culture to where you're, it's not just following, it's not, a, it's not an exercise in Christian liberty, but an exercise in secular morality. That's, that gets to be sort of weird. Like if there was a law that said, no stores are allowed to be open on Sunday, I would probably not be in favor of something like that. But if most shop owners said, listen, today's the Sabbath. I'm not going to work today. 
I'm going to go to church. I'm going to spend the Lord's Day with my family. Come back on Monday. Hey, I'm all for that. Pardon me? Yeah, Hobby Lobby and Chick-fil-A. Get your craft stuff on Monday and get your chicken sandwich too while you're at it, but not on Sunday, okay? Sure, and I don't think that it's helpful because it's exactly the same thing that the Pharisees did. This is the thing, right? If you judge the Pharisees as a Christian, you are a Pharisee because the, because the temptation is always toward Pharisaism. The Pharisees tried to be very pious. Think about all the Lutheran sermons that you've ever heard about the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and says, what must I do? And they all went like this, didn't they? He had the wrong question. He thought he had to do something. What he didn't realize was it's all about the grace of God. Well, let's, look, take, let's take a step back and look at that text for a minute. He did have to do something. He did have to keep the commandments. That was what he was taught. And he firmly desired to do it. And he firmly believed that he had. You know, Jesus doesn't tell him, hey, kid, get out of here. You're all wrong. You can't keep the commandments. What are you talking about? Salvation by grace. He says, oh, you've kept the commandments? Okay, only one thing then you have left to do. Sell your stuff and give to the poor. That's, that's it. Jesus humors him. Keep the, keep the law. Okay, I, you know, I'm doing my very best. There's nothing wrong with doing your very best. It's, it's when that starts to become rule. You know, you shall not cook a meal on a Sunday. Uh, when the legislature says no, no stores are allowed to be open on a Sunday. That's a different thing. The, the legalism is then not pietis, piety, excuse me. And that's sort of, you know, pietism is piety gone wrong. <laughs> it's mandated piety, which is never good. Then it isn't pious because it misses the point. True piety is born from the freedom of the Christian in true faith. But mandated piety is not. It's Pharisaism because then you're just, well, what are following rule. Holy days of obligations. Are, are you a pious Christian if you go to church? You say, I've got to go to church today because it's a holy day of obligation. Are you a pious Christian because you went to church? No, you're not. See, that's the problem, is then the, the legalism of it actually squashes any, any ability to be pious because you can't actually be pious when it's mandated. So well-meaning Christians, well Christians do things like Constantine did, but they're doing exactly the same thing that the Pharisees did. And you can't say that the Pharisees weren't well-meaning because they were. They wanted to be pious. The Pharisees get a really bad rap, and they, they should have, you know, had faith in Christ and listened to him instead of being stubborn, but how many of you listen to Christ when he tells you what you're supposed to do? How many of you aren't stubborn? If you weren't stubborn, I wouldn't have a job. <laughs> we wouldn't have it, we wouldn't have it, we wouldn't have any need for a church. You wouldn't have need for a Christ if you weren't a stubborn and a stiff-necked people. I'm not touching that one, Bill. Okay. Oh, I I, sorry, I thought that that was... Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, never mind. Give me just a minute, Gail. Yeah, and I don't, there's nothing wrong if that's how you want to do it. And we got a good time going. Yeah, 
Nothing wrong with that. Now, Morris. Uh, in the same general subject of what uh, Bill was talking about there, there was a, a, the uh, conservative Presbyterian Church, uh, a remark made at that uh, similar time there is to, uh, you should write your check for your offering on Saturday. Uh, because you're not supposed to work on Sunday by writing a check. Well, uh, that then leads to the point, uh, what if you backdate the check for Saturday? If you <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I think the spirit of that law would indicate that if you're backdating it, you're still writing it on the day. <laughs> I think Jesus can see through that. You know, there's going to be a lot of really... <laughs> There's going to be a lot of really surprised people when Jesus comes back and says, you were so good, but you wrote that check on Sunday, so I just can't let you in, you know? It's, yeah, I, again, I understand it, and I'm, I know, I have family that have been part of denominations that were like that and, and believed that way, and it's, it's not helpful. It wasn't helpful for the Pharisees. It wasn't helpful for the disciples. It wasn't helpful throughout the history of the church. It's not helpful now. So, f yes, follow the law. Well, do the money counters go through and check the dates? When <laughs> I don't know. You know. We'll have to check and see if something like that's written into the church's bylaws about, about counting money. You know. But, but you know, then the question is, is counting money on the Sabbath? Word? Yeah, should, should that be allowed? See, there's... Like I said, exactly, you can't put it back in. So then you have all these demons that come out of Pandora's box and the best that you can do is to classify them. Like you make a little zoo and some parts of the zoo are better than others. Like stay away from this part of the zoo on Sunday, but you know, all of these other things, you can go to all the rest of these parts, that's fine. Gail? So um, I was at home once and I don't know what brand of oven it was, okay. but we were, get, we were putting a casserole in the oven and I was looking at all the settings and there's a Sabbath setting. On the oven? On the oven. And I said, what in the world is this? Wow. Does it cook different on the Sabbath? What in the world? <laughs> it just doesn't do anything. <laughs> no, that it was a 24-hour. You could start it the day you could wow. it. You didn't even have to turn the oven on on the Sabbath. It would turn on. Wow. I have never heard of that. That's really, I mean... Somebody had a good idea. I bet they sold a lot of those ovens to, a, to certain groups of people, but man, I, that's, a little, that's a little over the top. Bill? Mike, we touched on this yesterday a little bit. Uh, I had several things I could comment on, but my experience in, in farming was that I always went to church on Sunday morning if if the conditions were such, sometimes work on Sunday afternoon. I know two examples of a guy who farms quite a few acres, and they work every Sunday during harvest. Don't I know two other examples that have in excess of 15,000 acres, and they don't turn a tap on Sunday. The 3,000, 4,000 acre farm, it gets done. But so does the 20,000 acre farm. It also gets done, and they don't work. My experience was, if you work on Sunday, about next Friday or Saturday, it gets to be a long week. And God instituted that for man to take that rest. And I always tried to comply. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a good thing to take a rest. I mean, maybe this betrays 
an ignorance on my part about farming, which, which admittedly I am, I am no expert on farming um, or on the, the harvest schedule. I know that there's kind of a time crunch that you want to get your harvest done in a timely manner within, you know, within a specific time frame uh, to avoid complications. But the question that I have is, how much, I'll be generous and say two hours on a Sunday morning, so how much more harvest do you really get done in two hours on that one day assuming that you go back to the field after church, how much, how much harvest are you really getting in, in that two hours or missing in that two hours? Is it, does it make that big of a difference? And I guess in my head, logically, again, perhaps betraying an ignorance of farming, logically, it seems to me like that two hours wouldn't make that big of a difference. It doesn't. And that two hours that I'm giving you is generous because that's two hours that would include, and I'm not talking about Sunday school or Bible class, I'm just talking about divine service. So that two hours would include the time that it would take for you to get up, get cleaned up, put your Sunday clothes on, come to church, and get back. I think that's reasonable in two hours to accomplish all of those things. And uh, so then the question is, what do you accomplish? How much more do you accomplish by having those two extra hours that you wouldn't if you actually took that time to come to service. Just a question, just kind of a grenade. My father always said the philosophy, if you work on Sunday, Monday, you would break down. Daddy said it is more true than that. Or dad would say, work Sunday and rain on Monday. Yeah. All right. <clears throat> I have one quote I want to look at in our last like three minutes here. So summertime Bible class is kind of a little more loosey-goosey and I don't mind. And I like stuff like this. So this isn't a, a reprimand. So one, one quote I want to look at just lastly in this idea of the intermediate state, because then that prepares us for next week when we're going to start talking about purgatory and the purgation and what Lutheran's approach to all that is, you know, all the background and, and, and how does that play in, if at all. And that's going to be fun. I love this stuff. Uh, so here is a quote. Whoever is with the Lord does not die. True or false? True, right. I mean, I've got it on, I've got it on my water because this is, this is sort of my jam. You, if you die before you die, you don't die when you die. Die before you die, you don't die when you die. That's a baptismal, kind of a baptismal creed, okay? So whoever's with the Lord doesn't die. Now, your body might die, yes. Uh, we would say, you know, though you die, you do not die. Even though your body passes away and we put you into the ground, you haven't died per se, okay? So whoever's with the Lord does not die. Two points are clear. One, human beings live on with the Lord, okay, that's that phrase that I use all the time. These are not my words. Human beings live on with the Lord even before the resurrection. So the idea of being safeguarded by Christ, being with the Lord and awaiting the resurrection. So this is, you know, the language of the funeral and the language that you've heard me use about all of this, that this is that same language. 
Second point, this living on is not yet identical with the resurrection, which comes only at the end of days and will be the full breaking in of God's lordship over the world. The resurrection is something different than what is happening in between death and the resurrection. Okay? That's, the, that's the basic point. Now, <clears throat> Pastor Morundi, who was the keynote speaker yesterday, he was talking about this. I unsolicited, it came up, and he was talking about Gnosticism, which I have brought up here, the idea that the flesh is bad and the spiritual is good, and so you know, we don't care about anything having to do with the flesh, and the flesh doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is the spirit. And he said that Christians are always in the temptation of being Gnostic and that we actually use the Gnostic language. And the way that we use the Gnostic language is, well, the body dies, but now I'm living in heaven with the, with the sense that, you know, uh, well, I'm up here and I'm, I'm with the Lord and I'm waiting for the resurrection. Oh, I'm going to look down and, like, you're living apart from your body, but that's Gnostic because you can't live apart from your body because your body is who you are. Your soul and your body are both who you are, not parts of who you are. So to, to the way that we often have popularly thought about death and, and the intermediate state or what happens when you die is, is not actually rooted in Christian teaching but in the heresies of the Gnostics. But, it's, but it sounds good and it's popular and it catches on and then, and then after generations you don't really know where it came from, you just know that that's what kind of is around. But, but this is what the actual Christian teaching is, is yes, you don't die even though you die, but the resurrection is the ultimate telos, the ultimate fulfillment of your faith. And at the Christian funeral, the thing that we look for is the resurrection. What is our hope? It is in the resurrection. You, you don't hear a sermon about, at least not in this church, about how, boy, I, they're having a great time up in heaven playing golf or fishing in heaven or croquet in heaven or, you know, whatever it is. You don't hear that here because we don't, I don't care about, you know, What's your heaven going to be like? You know, my, we, kids think this way. Which is, you know, heaven's going to be like all of the things that I love the most all combined into one place. And, you know, that's a, it's a childish way of thinking of it, but it's not a, not a wrong way per se. And my brother, there's <laughs> a while where my brother was obsessed with Spider-Man, and he said, my heaven is going to be a whole room with Velcro walls and a Velcro ceiling, and I'm going to have a suit with Velcro so I can climb on the walls like Spider-Man. <laughs> so why don't you have your heaven just be where you have Spider-Man's powers? Why does it have to be Velcro? Because well, Velcro's cool. Because Velcro's what he knows. Because he's a kid. But, you know, the idea that I'm going to die, and then all of a sudden, here I am in my Velcro Spider-Man suit. Hey, all right, Jesus! Yeah! Just what I always wanted! You know, that's really just not the way it is. The ultimate goal, you know, and, and nobody preaches like the funeral. Oh, boy, you know, he finally got his Spider-Man room, and isn't that great? You know, nobody, that's not the way it goes. It's always the hope in the resurrection. What is the, what is the one thing that gives you comfort when you have lost a loved one? that the resurrection is still coming, that they're gone for right now, but they aren't gone. They're going to be back. You're going to see them. You're going to be arm in arm again someday. There's the resurrection. That's the thing. Okay. So, whoever's with the Lord does not die. Two points. Human beings live on with the Lord even before the resurrection. Yes, yes, yes. This living on is not yet identical with the resurrection. 
which comes only at the end of days. There's your chronology, uh, the lineup of events, and will be the full breaking in. The full breaking in. So God already has lordship over all creation, but he hasn't broken it in yet. The full breaking in is when everything is now submit, in submission to him and there is no sin, nothing at all. We're all living under the lordship of the Lord and it's great, okay? All right, we'll see you at the altar.